Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Vok, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor at China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 18th of May, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Ukraine has made its first substantial battlefield advances in months as Volodymyr Zelensky secures new deliveries of Western weaponry. Good health to you, fellow Ukrainians. Three long days and our warriors and our states are getting stronger, much stronger, I am sure of it. We are returning home with new defense packages, more new and powerful weapons for the front line, more protection for our people, more political support. We discuss the stakes for Ukraine's coming counteroffensive. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Earlier this week, Ukraine announced its first substantive gains in six months as the Ukrainian military said it had advanced around two kilometers around Bakhmut. The eastern Ukrainian city has become the focus of fighting over the winter months, with both sides sustaining heavy casualties. The Ukrainian advances in recent days have prompted questions as to whether its much-anticipated spring counteroffensive has really begun. Katie, you've been following this. What do we know about the situation around Bakhmut, and does this signal the beginning of this much-vaunted Ukrainian counteroffensive? I think the most significant thing that has happened in recent days is these Ukrainian gains around Bakhmut to set the context, what we had seen really over the course of the last six months since the fall of Kherson, the southern Ukrainian city that Ukraine took back in November of last year, was very little movement in the front line. There was supposed to be a Russian offensive during the winter, but that really petered out with nothing to show for it apart from very heavy losses. And the fighting has really centered on Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. It is the longest battle of the war. It has seen the heaviest casualties. And although the city itself is not of tremendous strategic significance, it has developed this real symbolic importance for both sides. And that's where we've seen in recent days the Ukrainian military claiming gains of around two kilometers on the approaches to Bakhmut. The, the main part of the city itself 
is still controlled by Russia. I say city, it's really the ruins of a city now. But that's where we're starting to see movement. And actually, interestingly, a lot of the reporting on this is coming from Russian sources. It's coming from Yevgeny Prigozhin, the commander of the Wagner mercenary group. I know, Ido, you've written about Prigozhin and his actions of late, but it's really coming from him and from pro-Russian military bloggers, first and foremost, talking about these Ukrainian gains, in Prigozhin's case, accusing the Russian Ministry of Defense of not supplying enough ammunition. You get the sense from his statements of real dissent among the Russian lines, and this long-running, low-level contest that we've seen between Wagner and the Ministry of Defense has really seemed to heighten in recent weeks. And the Russian Ministry of Defense itself has acknowledged that it has withdrawn some of its forces, as it euphemistically puts it, I think, redeployed to more advantageous positions. So there is movement there. That is significant because it's the first time we've seen these lines move in months. But it doesn't necessarily augur the start of this counteroffensive in earnest. I think what it perhaps signals is the start of what are known as probing operations, essentially testing the Russian lines, looking for areas of weakness, and when they find them, pushing forward. But I think that the bulk of this counteroffensive, which has been very heavily anticipated now for many weeks, is probably still to come. Zelensky said last week that they needed a little more time before they started. He has talked about the need to get more weapons It's thought that also conditions on the ground, particularly to do with the famous mud that we talked about so much at the start of the war, drying into conditions that are more amenable for vehicles to move is another factor. So I don't think we are in the counteroffensive yet, but it is supposed to be coming and I think it will be quite significant. But if we take a step back and just look at some of the characters involved here in in more detail, Prigozhin, who I mentioned there, Ido You have written extensively about him. You have an excellent piece on whether he is now turning against Vladimir Putin. Can you give us more of a sense of who he is and how he has become such an important figure in this war? So I profiled Prigozhin a few months ago. He's this kind of essentially for for a long time served this kind of essentially jack of all trades for Putin. They've known each other since about the 90s when Putin used to go and dine on a floating restaurant that he operated in, I think, St. Petersburg, which is where his nickname Putin's chef comes from. And then Prigozhin became a sort of jack of all trades, essentially functionary of the Kremlin who was willing to undertake any kind of operations which suited the Kremlin, but the Kremlin didn't necessarily want to be officially associated with. So for example, he was indicted by the US for allegedly running troll farms to influence the 2016 US election. And of course, most famously now is the head of the Wagner Group, which is a private military company, which for a long time he denied he was the head of and would even sue journalists who suggested that he was associated with it. But of course, we've seen throughout the war that Wagner has a really quite important military role in terms of particularly plugging manpower deficiencies that the Russian army had for a long time. I'm not sure it's quite the case still since mobilization, but certainly in the first months of the war when there was clearly a manpower shortage, Wagner was used to plug the shortfall on the Russian side, including and famously by using convicts. So people recruited from prisons, often sent to the front with pretty minimal training and used in many cases as basically cannon fodder, but nonetheless, you know, warm bodies. And Wagner was playing an especially big role around Bakhmut, and not particularly successfully, it must be said. They'd managed to capture a smaller city called Solidar nearby, but they had been fighting for Bakhmut for months and months now, I think something like nine months by now. And Prigozhin was, I think, pretty clearly hoping for a victory for a bunch of reasons. Probably 
top of the list is that it would increase his political influence, being able to essentially show that Wagner can do what the official army, what the Ministry of Defense can't, which is basically make territorial gains, would increase his cachet with Putin and, and with the kind of the, the top of the Russian establishment, because of course the war is the biggest concern at the moment for them. But that didn't happen. So Wagner has been stuck in these battles of extraordinary brutality around Bakhmut. The US estimated that since December, Russia has suffered 100,000 casualties. So that's killed and wounded, including more than 20,000 killed. The majority of those are probably around Bakhmut. And that's a staggering death toll. And Wagner has still not been able to capture Bakhmut. And we've seen over the past couple of weeks, Bogosian has been issuing these incredibly rude, profanity-laden addresses in which he personally addresses the defense minister, Valery Gerasimov, the chief of the general staff, and he accuses them of starving Wagner of ammunition. And he essentially seems to be trying to pass the buck for not capturing Bakhmut to the Ministry of Defense and saying, look, if you'd given us the ammunition, we would have captured Bakhmut, but you didn't, and so we weren't able to. The argument I made in my piece, which we'll put in the show notes, is that this really seems like a sign that the system built up by Putin is reaching its limits. This this system of divide and rule of multiple agencies with overlapping responsibilities. Of course, Wagner is a pretty good example of that because it's this kind of parallel army that is working with the MOD and the official army, but also not, and clearly has a slightly different set of priorities to the official army. And of course, they're using convicts as opposed to um, either conscripts or professional soldiers, which is what the army is. It's an example of this kind of system that's been built up by Putin, as, you, as you've reported, Katie, just breaking apart under the strain of by far the, the most taxing, the most difficult task that post-Soviet Russia has ever undertaken. What do you think it means for the broader trajectory of the war? These complaints by Prigozhin that they're not getting enough ammunition. I know you've looked at whether that in fact perhaps all Russian units are not getting as much ammunition. Is there some degree of shell rationing happening? Are there shortages do you think the kind of dysfunction that you see personified by Prigozhin and this very public contest with the Ministry of Defense, does that augur real difficulties for Russia in the months ahead? Or, or are we reading too much into one man's histrionics? According to the people I spoke to for this piece, it probably is true that ammunition is being withheld from Wagner. But there is a general shortage of ammunition on the Russian side and also on the Ukrainian side because this war has been going on for over a year, almost a year and a half now. Of course, it's greatly depleted the stockpiles of the Russians and of the Ukrainians and the Western countries supplying the Ukrainians. We've heard plenty about the need to increase production from European countries, increase production of shells so that we can send them to the Ukraine to replenish them because they're basically using them much faster than Western countries can manufacture them. And the same is true on the Russian side. And we've got this additional factor on the Russian side, which is that they're anticipating this counteroffensive. They're expecting this counteroffensive. And they, according to the people I spoke to, there's probably a good chance that the Ministry of Defense is holding back ammunition supplies in anticipation of the counteroffensive. As always, it's incredibly difficult to say conclusively, but it is probably true that Wagner is not getting all the ammunition that it would want. Nothing is ever unlimited in, in these circumstances. And it's probably just like in all wars, sometimes there are failures, there are logistical failures, units want particular supplies that they don't get. So that's probably true. It's also probably true that there's a pretty chunky dose of politics. And I don't think you get Prigozhin personally insulting Gerasimov and also apparently Putin, because Prigozhin also said 
quote, what if it turns out that grandfather is a real asshole, which he denied it, but it does seem to bear a pretty striking resemblance to an expression which I'm sure you've come across Casey, which is grandpa in his bunker, which is this kind of derisory insult or um, nickname that opponents of Putin have for him, allegedly deriding him as hunkering down and not getting out there and just staying at his long tables, staying hunkered down. And using the word grandfather does kind of suggest that Prigozhin was at least possibly referring to that. All that together, it, it seems quite likely that there is also a decent amount of politics. It's conceivable that the Russian Ministry of Defense is limiting ammunition deliveries to Wagner so that Wagner continues sending men into the meat grinder and gets weakened as an organization. Because of course, it's difficult to imagine that the MOD and the army like having this parallel army, this competitor to their authority, with of course, a leader who's very outspoken, not afraid to throw his weight around insofar as he has any and it's effective. Overall, if you take a step back, it just shows the complete dysfunction of the state. I mean, this is not a good way to run a war effort. You shouldn't have commanders, even of parallel armies or something, going around publicly insulting the military and political leadership of the country that they're allegedly working for the war effort of. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
as you teed up the coming and much vaunted counteroffensive so neatly there, um, let's maybe get into that in a bit more detail. I think it's probably a fool's errand to try to predict where it will be targeted, what the specific objectives will be and, and the specific timing. But I think what we can talk about is why it matters. It's really interesting to me, and I've written about this for the magazine this week, that we've seen a degree of expectation management ahead of this from senior Ukrainian officials. So you had Alexei Reznikov, the defense minister, for instance, cautioning against, quote, waiting for something huge from this new campaign, which could lead to, quote, emotional disappointment. I think partly what you have is these expectations that stem from the counteroffensive in the Kharkiv region last September, when you saw these really stunning advances from Ukrainian troops taking back around 6,000 square kilometers of territory in just weeks. And I think there can be a tendency to look at this new counteroffensive, particularly given the amount of resources that have gone into it. So what we know is that it's expected to comprise 12 new combat brigades, nine of which have been trained and equipped by Western militaries. And they will have access to this massive infusion that we've seen in recent months of Challenger tanks from the UK, the famous Leopard 2 tanks from Germany, fighting vehicles from France, from the United States. So this amounts to the first real test of what a significant infusion of training and a significant amount of Western weaponry can do for the Ukrainian military. And I think that's why there is perhaps concern on the Ukrainian side about expecting this to be spectacular, you know, expecting a rout and the type of Kharkiv advances that we had last year, when in fact, the situation on the ground is difficult, it's complex. And Russia has spent a lot of the winter building very extensive defenses, trench networks, minefields, these concrete barricades known as dragon's teeth. Russia is also expecting this counteroffensive to come. So I think the expectation management is around, this is not likely to look like Kharkiv. Maybe it will be. Ukraine has defied our expectations at regular intervals since the start of this war. But it's more likely to look more like the battle for Kherson, which was long, it was grueling, it took months, and it involved heavy casualties. So I think it's probably important to be realistic about what can be achieved and how quickly it can be achieved. I think the real danger is that if that doesn't happen, and we saw the leaked US intelligence assessments earlier this year, were quite pessimistic about the prospects for this counteroffensive and talked about how the conflict was likely heading towards a stalemate. I think if that narrative takes hold, and there is a sense that even with all of this Western equipment, the training that Ukraine can't take back substantially more territory, then I think that's where you could see difficult questions come about whether that support can and should be sustained at its current levels and pressure, particularly from, from some who already want this for Ukraine to move towards negotiations, even though there's no, no evidence that Russia is interested in negotiations. Um, so I think those are the stakes for the counteroffensive. I don't think we should be reductive about it. It's not the case that if this isn't a massive success in a short period of time, then Ukraine's going to be pressured to look for negotiations and a ceasefire. But I think there is a real understanding, especially in Kyiv, that this is proof of concept. This is to show that Ukraine can still win 
that it can still take back significant territory and that if the West can keep its nerve, keep the weapons coming, then Ukraine can do this, that victory is possible and is within sight. So the, the stakes are pretty high. I don't think Ukraine is going to rush into this before they're ready. But as I say, we've underestimated Ukraine before. As you said, there's a lot riding on this. Ukraine has got to demonstrate that the support is working, that they're making good use of it. As you said, it seems, I don't want to overestimate the Russian army. That's been very difficult throughout this conflict. But it, equally, it seems somewhat implausible that there's going to be another Kharkiv, that there's going to be another instance where the Russians have these incredibly badly defended lines and the Ukrainians can essentially waltz through this blitzkrieg pace and just take swathes and swathes of territory. I wouldn't put anything past the Russians, but I don't think even they are dumb enough to make the same mistake twice. And they have been digging in over over the whole of winter. We've seen the defensive lines in the south, especially if the Ukrainians don't manage to take a lot of territory like they did in Kharkiv and, and Kherson last year. What could be the consequences of that? Then it will be time for the West to defy expectations, as Ukraine has been doing. I mean, which, to be fair, has happened so far. You know, when we talked at the start of this conflict, we absolutely did not foresee that the response would be unified, so resolute that it would last this long, that it would involve so many and such advanced types of weapon systems. We were told things like tanks were off the table months ago, and neither on the table. We were told fighter jets were definitely not under discussion, neither under discussion. So I think if that is the case, if Ukraine does not make significant gains, then that's where Western support and Western resolve is going to make a real difference. There's no question about Ukrainian resolve. There is no question about the willingness and the determination and frankly, the ability to continue to fight. But I think the idea from the Russian side that if they just drag this out long enough, then yes, Ukraine might still want to fight, but it won't be able to because Western support will wither Perhaps Donald Trump will get elected again here in the United States and the, the arms supplies will cease and Russia will be able to have its way. I think the only thing that can change that calculus and that can really push Putin to reappraise what he can do here is if Western countries, European leaders show that's not the case, that regardless of the outcome in the coming months, that they understand the stakes involved here, that they are in this for the long haul, and that they can outlast Putin. That's a very significant risk. Politics in here in the United States, in Europe too, can be fickle. And Putin's counting on that. The idea that Ukraine's going to fade, the will and the ability to support it is going to recede. And so if Russia can just outlast the next counteroffensive, if it can bog this down sufficiently, then eventually he'll get what he wants. The thesis of the piece I had this week, that it's, it has never been just the battle on the ground. That is tremendously significant. That's very important. And also we should say like every single place that Ukrainian soldiers take back, they find evidence of torture, war crimes, terrible atrocities. There is a very important military battle going on, but there's also this political campaign, which is essential to being able to continue that military battle. And that's where the outcome of these offensives matter. And that's on countries outside Ukraine as much as it is on Ukraine. And the military success on the ground has fed political support and vice versa. And that's going to be true of the coming campaign too. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to that story as the counteroffensive develops. 
That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday when Ido will be interviewing Philippe Sands on how to hold Vladimir Putin accountable for war crimes in Ukraine. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer's been Misha Frankel-Dugal. Thank you for listening and until next time.